And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shrine and Gary K. Wolfe, with very special guests, Alex E. Harrow, James Bradley, and Ian Mond on the very, very, very last Coot Street podcast for 2023. Oh, I I'm glad you added the for 2023. Uh, We're going to... Okay, this, this podcast, as we do every, I guess, every two years at this time with this group... Um, talk about some of our favorite books of the year. And I want to say something as a privilege of, of a co-host, that there are two books that we probably aren't going to mention, but I'm going to mention anyway that would have been on my list. One is Alex Harrow's novel, Starling House, which was one of the two or th- one of three really good haunted house novels. But we, we can talk about that later. And Jonathan, Jonathan, well, anyway. And Jonathan's Book of Witches was one of the best <laughs> anthologies. So we're going to set those aside here at the beginning so that we don't have to worry about the weather. But they're both terrific books, and everybody should read them. Excellent. Is, is, is anyone going to say anything? Any any response? Somebody, somebody I just feel like the faster we get through it, the faster, <laughs> you know, the more quickly it can be. We could have even not mentioned it at all. We could just edit that out. I think you guys have the tech. And we could just... Pretend like I, mean, I didn't I too... have a book come out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't think we could do that. But yeah, it's also very kind of you, Gary, to mention it. But this really is about talking about our favorite books of the year and not even necessarily the sort of the great critical best books of the year or anything like that. The ones we've enjoyed the most, the ones we'd like to recommend to readers around the world and say, if you've got a chance in the last week and a half to get or week before the, you know, the gift giving season sort of expires, you could race out and buy a book for a loved one. And one of these books might just appeal, though you have to work out which one that we can't help with. Don't know your people. Anyway, for, oh, we should just go around the room first of all. Alex, hi and welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. It feels like it's been like about a month since we saw each other. <laughs> it actually feels like it's been about a year, but I think it has been a month. <laughs> and James, James, well, welcome back to the podcast. It's been six months. Has it been that long? Maybe it's been longer. I don't know. But thank I, you. It's great. It's great to be here. Last time we saw one another, you, you were diving on kelp off Tasmania. Uh, yeah, I was down there with a group of people, group of scientists who are attempting to regenerate the giant kelp forests around Tasmania because like more than 95% of them have been lost over the last 20 years and they're a kind of fundamental part of the ecology down there. So they're, they're doing really interesting work, you know, and it, it, it's interesting work as well because it's that kind of work that's done in the face of knowing that it's the rising temperatures that are killing them and even if they develop more thermally tolerant ones, they might just die this summer. So they're, they're kind of amazing people. Yeah, and Ian, and I think the drinking. last time I sorry, and Ian, I think the last time I spoke to you, we were drinking red wine in an Italian restaurant in somewhere in Melbourne. That well, that's in person. But one of my favourite things this year was watching the World Cup with you. Yeah, well, I mean, yes. you were in WA and I was in Melbourne. But the message, the, the the messages we said to each other, mostly you panicking every every second. <laughs> this will be of no interest to your to the American audience and to the two At Americans uh, here. But uh, but it was actually quite an exciting uh, tournament. Yeah, cricket. Yes, you don't even cricket. know which World Cup you're talking about. Cricket. <laughs> and Gary, it, it, it's been a while. Well, it's been a month or two as well. It's been like an hour. What's the matter here? <laughs> But it is. So it, it, what it, I'm is, gonna... it is our final podcast of 23, so we should all toast something. I don't know. Um, well, what I thought I might do quickly, just do a quick spin around for a quick thing. Uh, just asking, like, how was your reading year? How did you feel about it? Did you 
was there more than you could could read or were you scraping around for something decent to, 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 to read? I mean, I assume in your case, Alex, you're getting books thrown at you to blurb at every every second minute now. Would that be about right? That's about, that's about, I actually, my agent now filters them. She took away my power of saying yes, um, which yep. I think was good in the spirit of the way that parents take away toys that children can't control themselves around. <laughs> so I no longer have the ability to say yes to those, but I did say yes to far more than I could possibly read. And I've been, you know, kind of variously excited, disappointed by, overwhelmed by the amount of good fiction that's out there. As usual, I find it more increasingly difficult to go back and catch up on older stuff. Yeah. Like I am so like, oh, what's coming out next? And I'm reading books for 2024 now. And then I'm realizing that what I actually wanted to read for like the book I'm writing now or whatever came out 20 years ago, you know? So I'm, yeah. I'm trying to balance more next year is my goal. <laughs> well, certainly once you get into it, it becomes harder to be the casual reader you used to be who just picked something out of interest. And yes, yeah, suddenly anything that came out three months ago came, might as well have come out 20 years ago because you'll never look at it, which is kind of crazy. But it is how it is. How about for, for you, James, you've been running around, working hard, trying to finish the new book and everything. Has the reading year been good? I'm going to sound like the Grinch here. No, it's been really patchy. Um, but I mean, I think that's partly because I have been working so much on this book that it's, you know, your brain is kind of consumed with that. And But I read a series of things I really loved across the year, which was great. But I think it was one of those years where I, I kept having that experience where you'd read a book and go, yeah, I didn't like that. Yeah, I didn't like that. And then you hit a run of about six where you go, these are fantastic, rather than I'm usually much better at calibrating it. than. <laughs> How about Although you, Ian, like, like Gary? <laughs> we all have a moment. How about you, Ian? You're, like Gary, you're, you're driven to actually read for reviewing, which is one of life's crueler punishments. How's your reading here been? I'm the opposite of James. 2023 is the best year. I've had since reviewing for Locus, actually. So that's now nearly six years. So poo on you, James. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, the, look, uh, mathematically, because, uh, you know, I rank every book I read. Uh, mathematically, yeah, this has been the best. But by a lot, if you can't find anything decent to read from from a 2023 published book, then you ain't looking places. So, Hang on. Of course, based on this podcast, you're going to have 25 of them. But still, that's what I'm saying. There you go. You rank all the books you read, me in? I can believe I that. Don't. So, so on Goodreads, I don't. I actively don't. I took that inspiration from James. Uh, I, I don't put stars. But on my Excel sheet, uh, which goes back 10 years, yes, I do rank them. Yes. So That's interesting. So there's a secret Excel and sheet, is there? Correct. There is. There is. Which I, and which when, I you die, like, when you die, someone will find that and will know what you yes. truly thought about everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And there are oh, some God. books. I'm not going to say anymore. Let's just leave it at that. Yes, that is what James just said there. I may be blushing a little bit. That is true. <laughs> we all want to see this. And Gary, how about you? How was your reading year? I was uh, saying uh, to you earlier that one of the things I do like about these year-end things is that I discover what the reading year was like. Because like, like Ian, I have to go through things month by month. You have to make decisions in a week or two weeks as to whether this book is really one of the top books, which is ridiculous. But at the end of the year, I can think back on books that, which ones are most vivid in my memory, which ones are sticking with me, um, which ones uh, do I know I reviewed, but I can't even remember what they were about now. Um, so to some extent, this is a good way of, I, I don't formally rank books at all because I think that's a fascist thing to do. But <laughs> it is a way of um, kind of 
realizing what books appealed to me in, in a way that I may not have known at the time. One of the novels which is coming out this year, I won't mention the title yet because we'll talk about it later, but I read a novel a few weeks ago and gave it a good review, and now I'm thinking, wait a minute, that novel was a lot better. I gave it a good review, but it was a lot better than I thought it was. And this has happened to me a couple of times this year as well. Yeah. For me, it was just simply the worst reading year ever. Not because the books weren't brilliant. It was me. I just just struggled to pay attention to anything in 2023. So the books that I recommended had to try either A, triumph over enormous adversity because they encountered me as a reader, or I actually secretly read them the year before. You know, so like I, I read Starting House in October of 2022, you know. And I read one of the books that's on my list, a chunk of it I read in 2021. Um, one of Ian's books that he's read, I probably read two years before. So it's, you know, that, that sort of gives me some space, but it's not the feel for the year that I, that I used to have, which is weird because we're in the middle of doing recommended reading. But anyway, there we is, should there, kick there, off the gift cards. Oh, yeah, Gary. I, I, there, there is a, one of my favorite uh, openings of any novel. It's a tell Calvino's If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler, and he's talking about walking through a bookstore looking for the new Calvino novel and walking past these piles of books. And he's got categories of books. My favorite category is books that you don't need to read because they belong to the category of books that were read before being written. And <laughs> it occurred to me that, yes, I've seen a number of those this year. <laughs> okay, we're going to kick off. And yeah, by the sheer going. wonder of alphabetical order, we'll unfairly start with Ali. Oh. I'm Your ready. First okay. book, Alex, that you want to recommend to poor unsuspecting crude streeters. I, through the power of dibs and going first, get to talk about Meanwood by Nicola Griffith, which is easily my favorite book of the year. Um, maybe of the last several years. I think Nicola Griffith is just like one of those best living writers, like full stop without putting kind of genre modifiers in there. And she's done you know, like I've been reading her for a long time and she's done like crime fillers and sci-fi and memoir and like all these different genres and fantasy. And when I read Hild, which is like 10 years old now, yep, it was clear that like she had found kind of a home that she was going to dig into and stay mm -hmm. in for a while. Just the level of depth and research and, and what she was building was so much more than like a novel or a series. Um, and then Minwood comes out and it's covering just another, I think, only two years total, maybe even less than that sort of time yeah. in the sixth century um, Anglo-Saxon world. And I thought it was even better. I thought it was like much heavier, much sadder, much more grown up, kind of as Hild the character has grown. Um, and I think much riskier as a character arc, because there is an element to Hild that feels familiar, like very special girl gains power in this medieval world and climbs through her very, her specialness and her cleverness and then achieves a, a certain status. And that was that arc. And Meanwoods is so much more about losing all of that and like rebuilding it in a much more complex and thoughtful and grieving way. And I just thought it was gorgeous. And I thought it was exactly the book I wanted to be reading. And that is so hard to do for like, is it like 700 pages yeah. or something? Just like very few writers could possibly sustain my interest or anyone's interest for that long. And I think it's magnificent. Are you at all worried about sort of Game of Thrones-itis? Because as you say, Hilda's only two years older and there's an entire <laughs> life to get through. Yeah, but the way, like if it had only been Hilda, I would have been happy. If it had only, if it ends here, I would be. 
like I just feel like they feel so much like pieces in a real life that it doesn't feel like ah cliffhanger you get cliffhanger like something like this like I don't know I would be content if it ends here we probably should mention that it's okay. not actually a fantasy novel at all um, that's true and, but I just count it because I, know. I want to <laughs> it, 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 it does for okay. intelligent readers what good fantasy novels do whether there's material fantasy. Can I ask a controversial question? I know we've we've only got a short amount of time, and I could. Is no, actually, I probably shouldn't ask this. But I was going to. There were some books last year that weren't put on Locus recommended reading because they weren't genre, but I felt they were. Is this a book that might fall through that crack? Yes, I've thrown in the provocative. No. Oh no, this won't fall through that crack, mate. Okay. This will this will be on the Locus. I would be I would be taken aback if it proved not to be on the list. We simply say that, not to speak out of school. Anyway, moving on, it, it, with, the, with this theoretical alphabetical order I mentioned a moment ago, that would put Ian next, because Gary's a host and comes last. So, Ian, uh, what okay, is fair, your fair first book? So, so, Alex spoke about a very, very long book. I'm going to speak about a very, very short book. Um, my favourite, uh, uh, which was um, Hillary... Uh, oh, what hell, title? Uh, yeah, Liked sorry, to? apologies. <laughs> it's Hillary Lichter's Terror Stories. Um which is essentially uh, four connected uh, stories. It's a mosaic novel, but they are connected. Um, so what's amazing... So first off, Hilary Leichter, or Leichter, sorry if I mispronounced her, her surname, uh, she uh, wrote a novel a couple of years back, a debut called Temporary, which was just wonderfully absurd, uh, which was a, a, a woman going through uh, several temporary jobs where... <laughs> She was anything, you know, gig economy, anything from driving a truck to being the CEO of a company to being on a pirate ship. So just, you know, a far, a range of, uh, a vast range of jobs. This one is very much, it feels like it's very much uh, an extension of the pandemic and about, because it, it is focused very much on architecture and architectural anomalies, but it's also about very much living in spaces and living in homes and, and space. And it feels like it's come as a result of us all being in lockdown uh, during the pandemic. So it's it's just a, a, a gorgeous, beautiful bit of writing. I mean, it, it reminded me of sort of uh, the Jennifer Egan and Emily St. John Mandel's novels of last year in that it has that sort of um, uh, light touch, but beautiful light touch to it. But uh, but this is better actually. Um, this is this is this is it's, it could be mawkish, could be sentimental, but just just to go with the premise, just quickly because it is because what's the genre element? Um, the opening story is essentially uh, a, a couple have moved to an apartment block. Um, the, the the wife has just given birth, so they've got a new child. Anyway, she's gone back to work, and her coworker comes back to the house. And they and 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 when the coworker comes back to the apartment, the coworker opens a door which just leads to the closet but it opens out into a terrace. And that terrace only exists when the co-worker is in the apartment. So the, the couple keep inviting the co-worker over just so they can experience the terrace. And it goes from there. And then the three stories that go on sort of rebound back to why that's occurred, but then go far further than that. So it's brilliant. Yes, I loved it. Heavily recommend. Jane, how about you? What would be your first book you'd, you'd, you'd mentioned this year? Um, I'm going to double down on the uh, alphabetical structure and do mine alphabetically. Um, I'd also say it's interesting that Terror Story, I mean, there's a whole genre, isn't there, of novels which are essentially hidden room novels. I mean, you begin mm -hmm. with M.R. James and move forward from there. It's, yep. it's, kind of, it's an interesting thing about the invisible disappearing room. Uh, so the first on my list alphabetically is, um, is uh, 
Aiden Brenya and Nana Kwame's uh, Chain Gang All Stars, which is a, a novel set, you know, two minutes from now in an America where the biggest thing in culture are these kind of essentially kind of Hunger Games or or incredibly violent televised battles between groups of people who are criminals who have been given or people serving life sentences who've been given the chance to kind of buy out their sentence by going and fighting to the death in these in these kind of televised games and it's a it's a kind of incredible novel i mean he he wrote a really interesting book of stories a couple of years ago um which kind of sit really interestingly on this kind of point around kind of capitalism and racism and it's talking about a number of the ways those things twine but this one does it in a you know the conceit is so kind of in your face and so direct but then the thing that the book does that stops it feeling i mean there's kind of a level at which it's very very literal but what it does which is really fascinating with that is sitting underneath it is this kind of footnoted set of connections where what it does is it says look this is how the legislation played out in this place this is what the history of this kind of enslavement is like this is it so there's this kind of non-fictional apparatus sitting underneath the book and it does something in the same way that a book like uh colson whitehead's the underground railroad does it does something really fascinating about kind of collapsing the historical frame so what you see is this kind of continuity between the racial violence of 400 years ago and the racial violence of now, the racial violence of 50 years ago and the racial violence of 20 years from now. And I, I thought it was just an extraordinary novel. I mean, there's a kind of level of anger and, and I guess, kind of almost despair often, but it never sinks into that. But but there's a kind of intellectual structure to it, which is so exciting when you're reading it. I've, I found it a really profoundly exciting book to read, which I'm, seems I'm odd. With I mean, James. It's odd. I'm with you, James. It's amazing. Yeah. I, would, I was going to choose it, book. so it is. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those books I wish everyone would read. Gary, what about you? I'm going to try to be brief because I really want to listen to everybody else, but one of the, one of the ones on my list was uh, a writer that I've just enjoyed for years and doesn't disappoint me is Jonathan Carroll's Mr. Breakfast, uh, which is... Again, it's, it's, it's an interesting example of uh, parallel lives. I guess, I guess the personal alternate history where somebody can see what their lives might have been like, and he sets up arbitrary rules, but it's a wonderful portrait of roadside America in a way that Carol has been getting more and more adept at. I think, I think, I think he lives in Vienna, and I think as long he's been in Vienna for decades, and the more he lives there, the more he thinks interestingly about the American landscape and American characters and Mr. Breakfast is the name of an abandoned uh, diner somewhere uh, in, in the rural Midwest. And it really uh, is, like most Carol novels, it has some fairly arbitrary supernatural happenings in it, but it also has rigid rules that it sets for itself. So there's, there's a game playing out. But mostly it's, it's the portrait of characters and the portrait of the landscape, which he's just gotten very, very precise and, and accurate in depicting. Okay. Okay. I started reading Ian MacDonald back in 1986 when he wrote a book called Desolation Boulevard. It came out the same week as his debut short story collection because they were trying to make an impact. Mm -hmm. And since then, he's written a really sort of fascinating array of old-style science fiction and cutting-edge contemporary stuff. In the background, it seems, for about 20 years, he was working on another book, a book called that ultimately came out this year uh, called Hopeland which I read initially as a batch of novellas about three years ago. And it opens with a 
young woman racing through the streets of contemporary uh, London who bumps into this man who chases after her because he's absolutely entranced by what she's doing. And she's trying to become the, uh, the new electromancer for the city of London. She's going to channel its spirit, if you will. And he tumbles into this world of this rich, cultural, different kind of family and its experience. But then she is drawn into his world, which is its own thing. And it sprawls into a sort of modern anthropocenic kind of examination of love in all its forms. I don't know that it's 100% successful. It has its indulgences in there. And I think any book that anyone... I always have this feeling that if I hear someone has been tinkering with a book for 20 years that maybe it's possible they were tinkering too long. And I retain mm-hmm. a great fear that it should, the later, the, the novels that Howard Waldrop has been working on for 35 and 38 oh. years now or something ever appear, <laughs> they'll be like a source that's been simmered for that long and will be unreadable to other humans, I just suspect. But this, for the most part, is an utter delight. And I'm not going to say it's necessarily my absolute favorite book of the year, uh, but it was one I loved, and I uh, recommend it quite quite strongly. Jonathan, there's a storm that's described in that book. It yeah. is one of the best passages of fiction I read this year. Just literally electric, and the the, the prose is electric. Mm. Yeah. So it's got some amazing okay. set pieces. At this rate, we're going to be here until February. Sorry, I apologise. <laughs> Alex, what came next? Uh, I'm going to be a model of efficiency. Um, the Last Tale of the Flower Bride by Rashani Chakshi, who I have not read her YA. I think she started in YA. This is her first adult. Um, and I loved it. It's like a contemporary gothic. It is loosely, very loosely kind of a Bluebeard retelling. Hmm. Um, but what I found it mostly to be was sort of a dreamy, surprisingly dark investigation into marriage. Um hmm. And specifically kind of like that classic fairy tale moment where you're married to the prince or whatever, and it's all romantic. And then you fuck it up by needing to know a little bit too much. Like you look <laughs> into the chest that you're not supposed to, or, yeah. you, or you carry the candle into the, you know, like you're not supposed to do it and you, and you have to know. And so you mess it up. And it's sort of the finding out more than you wanted about your spouse. So it's told in like dual timelines of the husband who's married now finding out about his wife's past. And I just found it like kind of, I don't know. And like actually being into a dream, like it was one of the most successful atmospheres that I've read this year. Um, I found it really impressive on a craft level, um, like to do a fairy tale that feels as dark as fairy tales should. Um, and that feels as like, like both the real stakes of this marriage and the fairy tale stakes feel equally possible and equally threatening the whole time. I thought that was really cool. And I also am choosing this because it is representative of the number of Gothic house books that came out this year. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm thinking of one in particular. I'm not going to name that one. But there was also, you know, uh, Elizabeth Hand's Hill House sequel and sure. Ava Reed's A Study in Drowning, which was one of my other favorites. So it was a bit of a trip. And, and Arcady Martin's Rose House. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And the, Grady, and the Grady Hendrix book? Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. I mean, it does kind of feel like... But if you ask yourself sort of what was the outcome of the pandemic, you've got to wonder whether Terror Story and these other books, which are all about sort of basically being stuck in a location, having it been being not quite course, what you yeah. thought it was, might be what we're seeing. Okay, Ian. Conquest by Nina Allen. Move on. No, no, I'll, I'll say a little bit about it. Uh, 
I bet you Gary wanted to mention this one. I did. Yes. Stole it from me. Yes. Yes. Ha <laughs> ha. Yes, I did. Um, look, so uh, deconstruction of genre. That's what Nina Allen's been doing. Nina Allen has been doing for the last several years. I feel like this one is peak Nina Allen in terms of deconstructing genre uh, in, in the sense that it has uh, in the centre of it a uh, sort of golden age uh, novel uh, or novella bit like what Larvi does as well. So there's there's actually a lot of connections between this and Larvi does book as they came out this year. Um, look, it's it, it, the, the plot is actually reasonably straightforward in the sense that a, a bloke named Frank, who believes his dad's a super soldier and believes in all manner of conspiracy theories, goes off to Paris and vanishes. And his uh, yeah. sister uh, appoints a, a private eye to go find Frank. And in amongst all that, very straightforward detective narrative. Yeah. There is an exam- examination of Shane Carrat's <laughs> movie, uh, the the second one he wrote, um, the, the colour one, uh, which I've forgotten. But 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 then he, him is a problematic figure. There's stuff on hands, Werner hands. There's stuff on back and the Goldberg variations. It just go it just goes everywhere and anywhere. Plus that central element, which is the uh, this novel uh, or novella that everyone uh, thinks. Uh, hints at an alien invasion that's actually occurring and has been this, this this lodestone for conspiracy theorists for some time. And I'll end on this by saying that Kirsten and I discussed it on Writer and the Critic, and we spent, I don't know, 15 minutes in that discussion just talking about whether the errors in the novella are errors of Nina Allen's doing or just errors she's accidentally made. And it was that sort of book where you, <laughs> you're never sure whether they're deliberate or not deliberate, and we banged our head against the wall. But I loved it. I, this is this is what I love genre doing. This is this is this is this is catnip for me. This book. So yes, James. James, what came after the book that came before? Uh, I, the next one in my alphabetical list is um, a, a, a second Ian on the Nina Allen, which I thought was marvelous as well. Um, uh, is Anne Leckie's translation state, which I I, I love Leckie's fiction. Uh, I I've loved all of them. I I loved the. Uh, the Raven House, even um, which is very strange, but this one is another one in the same world as the. Uh, uh, I'm completely blanking on the name of them. The Red Ark books, um, and it's set out kind of outside of that space, um, and it's about the Prager, the the aliens who are kind of kicking around that, who are very strange and totally inhuman, um, and it's a it's a wonderful book. I mean, it, it's kind of got all of the kind of. Uh, I guess both the kind of fictional and the emotional intelligence that she brings to bear on all of her books. But, you know, it's fascinating about the construction of self, about gender, about about a whole series of questions. And it's just, but like all of her books, there's this kind of generosity of, I guess, a kind of emotional and human generosity to it, which means that you're simultaneously reading this book, which is intellectually incredibly interesting, but which... It's very moving and very kind, and uh, yeah, I, I loved it. And I, I, look, I love all of her books. She's one of those writers I'm always incredibly yeah. excited to read. And this I'm one, a huge Raven Tower defender. I think you're right. Everyone should love it. It's, it's really great. It's so <laughs> deeply weird, but it's so it great it's, and kind. I think that is like the fundamental ethos of her books. That I just that's why you read them. Yeah, and look, I think Raven Tower, you know, is a really fascinating book, and it's a book that, like, it sits in a kind of space of kind of anthropocene fiction in a really fascinating way it's a book about mm-hmm. trying to write about landscape do you know what i mean like and it, it, it it's utterly bizarre like you know, but this is a much more conventional novel translation state is a much more conventional novel but yeah th- that kind of kindness i think is what makes them such wonderful books to read and not in a 
not in a saccharine kind of way. You know, there's a kind of emotional intelligence to it, which I find really, they're, they're books for grown-ups that are kind books, if that makes sense. You know, so they're not wish fulfillment books. <laughs> I'm going to speak here in a minute about coziness as a phenomenon. I'm going to get to that. Oh, good. I yeah, we we, we may well find ourselves on the same page about that. I would not see her as a cozy writer, but she is a kind writer. <laughs> Gary, what happened after breakfast? Um, lunch? I don't have a naked lunch. No. Um, I was not going to put this on the list, but I thought we were talking about books that are possibly appropriate gifts for the holiday season. And it was a very strong year for retrospective anthologies from major writers. There were a lot of, there's a James Tiptree anthology. There was a Howard Waldorf anthology. So the one that occurred to me would be a wonderful Christmas gift if you know someone uh, who would appreciate it would be the two volume essential Peter Beagle from from Tachyon. Partly because um, a couple of things. One is Beagle still has a reputation among, I think the vast majority of readers for the, for the damned unicorn, which is fine. It's a, it's, a, it's a classic fantasy. But the last 20 years, he's been writing some very personal uh, uh, autobiographical fantasies drawn on his own childhood in New York, in the Bronx, his, his uncles, who I think were associated with the Ashcan School of uh, Painters. Uh, there are classics in the two-volume thing, things like Come Lady Death and Wild of the Werewolf. Um, and I think to get a broad spectrum of what Beagle has been doing for a long career, which is not over yet because there's another major novel coming out this year, uh, that this would be a, a wonderful gift. And it, it's a two-volume thing. It says essential, you know, which don't get me started on that because that implies the non-essential Peter Beagle, which is probably another anthology. Um, but that gets me talking about the essential Ellison, which I called, really don't want to get the non-essential Peter Beagle. <laughs> That's actually a great short story collection idea. Most non <laughs> the non-essential. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't see the publishers going going for that at all. I, I can sort of say, that, you know, for those who do pick up the essential Peter Beagle, that I know that next year we'll see his first novel in seven years come out. A book called I'm Afraid You've Got Dragons, which people who I know know say is the best thing he's written in a long, long time. And I think that's a a, 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 rec a recommend a book to, to, to look for, based on anything I've heard. Okay, just quickly, uh, a few years ago, Garth Nix, who has been uh, a wonderful, wonderful writer for, again, 30 years, put, uh, put out the sequel to his The Left-Handed Booksellers of London, a book called The, uh, the Sinister Booksellers of Bath. And again, I'm sorry, the reason that I suddenly, suddenly sort of stopped was I'd picked up a book and I thought, I've picked up the new book. And then I realized that they look similar enough that I've picked up the first book. But they're <laughs> marketed as adult fantasy, which I think is probably fair. They're, they posit a contemporary London world where there's an alternate society of uh, booksellers, left-handed booksellers who have access to magic. And this is in around Bath and the baths in Bath and the spirits there and everything else, and is as engaging and as rich and a one, as wonderful a novel as he's put out in, in many a year. So I would I would say start with the left-handed booksellers of London before you go on to the sinister booksellers of uh, Bath. But the, the pair of them are, are enormously entertaining and wonderful. Uh, so, yeah. Back to Alex. Then we circle back. Can I just Alex. jump in and say I love both those bookseller books. I think that there yeah. is a kind of there's such a sense of kind of discovery and and of just kind of energy to them you know i mean i, I, I like all of garth's fiction but i i really love the bookseller books oh, jonathan's now holding it up and i think the new one is actually 
better than the first one, which is kind I of fascinating. And they sort of stand alone enough. I mean, like, if, I mean, if you could read uh, Sinister by itself, but I can't imagine what, why you would. And think about it, a wonderful gift to put together the two, the two books. Anyway, Alex, what is your third choice? So my third choice is where I would like to begin to discuss <laughs> the frequency of the word cozy in online book <laughs> reviewing spaces this year for our sins. Um, and I, I don't actually want to get in, I don't actually want to start fights. But I, I, <laughs> I but, but think I do. But I will. Um, no, I think it's a very reductive and overused term to describe. I think basically comfort is what we're looking. You know, like variously defined comfort reading and a sense of warmth, which is not something I am opposed to in my fiction. I read a ton of romance novels. I very much like to feed myself what I like to eat. However, I am not fully satisfied usually with a cozy read unless it has. Um, an element of darkness. If, unless it is willing to acknowledge what you're seeking comfort from, then I don't find it. I find it kind of vapid. Um, and it's for the same reason I love nostalgic books, but not if they're just giving you nostalgia with no element of critique at all. And so the perfect answer to that for me is The Magician's Daughter by H.G. Perry. Um, she's written a few books before. I've liked them all. I feel like none of them have quite taken off, but they're just so smart. And she's a professor of Victorian literature so everything she has done is kind of like deeply informed in a lot of this nerdy stuff that is pleasing mm -hmm. to me and very nostalgic but very smart about it so this one is to me her, her if you loved a little princess in the secret garden <laughs> and maybe Howl's Moving Castle this mm -hmm. is a slightly grown-up version for you that is it has kind of those familiar elements of like plucky teenage girl there's a hapless magician and there's like magic rabbits and you're on an island, whatever. But there's like a real engagement with some scary elements of like Victorian stratification and class and poverty and the cruelty of the idea of a fantasy world where magic is a haves and have nots situation. Mm -hmm. Like she actually kind of engages with it in a way that I think is just really smart and kind and cozy. <laughs> we need to do a whole episode on cozy because I, I think it started it started with murder mysteries, but then decades ago Brian Aldous appropriated it for for uh, apocalyptic novels, what he called the cozy catastrophe, by which I think he meant John Wyndham, where the world is falling apart, but there's this one village, and if you straighten out things in the village, basically screw the rest of the world. Um, and and now it's being adopted. I see cozy horror, cozy fantasy. You know, I, I I agree. It's it's one of those terms, but going to wear out really quickly. I think. And already. I has. don't know. I don't know. But I mean, I do. I do agree with you, though. Cozy without the counterbalance is not satisfying. And there are a few quite successful examples lately which have that not satisfying element to them because they don't have any counterbalance balancing substance i guess as much as anything they are somewhat like my romance novels if nobody suffers i want them to really go through it first like yes happily ever after for about two percent at the end <laughs> what, what's the uh, definition of fiction things get worse like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes and then this happened uh ian what happened next so my book next book is not cozy at all uh, it's In Ascension by Martin McInnes. Um, so this is one that I picked up because uh, friend of the podcast, I've always wanted to say that, friend of the podcast, Neil Harrison, 
mentioned he mentioned this on your Facebook post, Jonathan. This is one of was one of his favorite. This was about six months ago when you um, asked what what's the favorite book so far, and he said this one. I said, okay, cool, I'll pick it up. Now, McInnes I'd known about, but I'd never read any McInnes. I've actually got a couple of his books sitting on shelves that I've never read. Uh, because who doesn't do that? Uh, all of us, I suppose. Um, this one is a slow burn. Uh, it doesn't start as, you know, a genre novels per se. It's very much a family novel about uh, a, a family, uh, a, a father who's disenfranchised because he's lost, he's losing a sense of his, his self. He takes it out on his kids. This all sounds very dark and miserable. But then it becomes this, it opens up, all that abuse, et cetera, opens up into this extraordinary novel about the sense of wonder. And it parallels both the sense of wonder of marine biology and going out into the sea and the wonders deep in the ocean, and then later on, interstellar wonders, wonders out in space. And it parallels both in a first contact-ish sort of way that I've never, ever seen before. I've never been so fascinated in experimental algae. I bet James loves experimental algae, but I personally <laughs> have never been fascinated in it, and it's something that is that is central to this book. Um, but really, it's a it's a meditation on on our existence as a species because it is a novel of the Anthropocene, and it you know where where we are you know what what are we going to become who are we going to be and uh, and then it becomes also a far more intimate piece on on because uh, it, it 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 reflects back on that opening about family and and the nature of family and uh, and fatherhood motherhood and 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 the 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 connections between daughters their fathers and their mothers and it's just a how how McInnes has brought that all together in a way that's satisfying and beautiful and sad is um, wow, it's pretty amazing. I this this one is probably the one that I think wins the Clark Award this year. If I had to throw, there's a couple others. I mean, one of the other books I'm going to mention soon probably is up there too. But this, I think, it, it did get to long listed. I think for the Booker. Mm-hmm. So, it did, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, terrific I, I novel. Think from- you know when it opens in you know if, you know from the opening in Rotterdam when you you've got the father who spent his whole life you know working to maintain you know the the system that keeps the oceans at bay and then realizing it's all going to fail and all that kind of it's it's utterly engaging from from the Correct. beginning I think. Thank you, Jonathan, for saying that opening better than I just did. Yeah, Rotterdam. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> James, what's your third uh, choice? That's terrible. Uh, doesn't uh, like we've got the winners and now we're going on down through this batch of hopeless losers. <laughs> Jonathan, it's so inaccurate. I, I reject this reject this hierarchical approach. I agree that In Ascension is marvellous. One of the things I think is hilarious is that another book came out this year which is called Ascension, which is so In Ascension on the conceits is that there's a giant trench in the middle of mm-hmm. the Pacific Ocean. I'm now actually yes. forgetting this a while since I read it. Um and in Ascension, a giant mountain appears in the middle yeah. of the Atlantic Ocean. I haven't read Ascension yet, but I just think it's kind of hilarious. You've got these two books with the same title, which kind of have such similar conceits. Um, uh, so my third is, in fact, Kelly Link's collection. Um, oh, is it Black Dog, White Cat or White Dog, Black Cat? I now can't remember which it is. Um, and I always get it wrong. But it's... Ah. it's it, Black Dog, White Cat. Black, Black Dog, Dog, White Cat. Thank you very much. Yeah, and, and the mm. White Cats. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I love Kelly Link's work. Um, I am very excited about the novel that's coming out in a month or two. But this is, 
loosely a series of retellings. I mean, it's kind of presented as a series of retellings of fairy tales. Um, they are, we were talking about the kind of non-essential stories before. These are, are mostly fairy tales, which are those other, other fairy tales. You know, they're, they're ones that you kind of know the name of, but you're not going to remember the, the plot of quickly. But most of the stories are moved, I think, so far from their kind of fairy tale origins that, you know, you'd have to be working quite hard, I think, to pick them up. But, you know, like all of her books there, all of her stories, they're fascinating and kind of intertextual. They're not just about the fairy tales. There's comic books in there. There's um, other novels. I mean, they're kind of wonderfully constructed kind of literary things, but they're, they're kind of, look, I think she's amazing. Look, and, and what I loved about these was the way you have this kind of archetypal fairy tale sensibility sitting right up next to this incredibly, utterly contemporary, utterly kind of of the moment kind of sensibilities. They have this marvellous thing with the white cats, in fact, where the white cats are running a kind of legal marijuana plantation mm-hmm. and that's what they do for business. Like, yeah, And that doesn't, and it never feels twee, like it never feels cutesy. There's this marvellous kind of darkness and sexiness to the kind of stories. I, mean, I, 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 think it's, I think it's utterly brilliant. I think it's as good as Magic for Beginners, her first collection. Um, uh, much as I love her, I think the ones in between have perhaps been a little patchier. Um, but this one is just, it's just stunning. It's a brilliant book. Yeah, I, I mean, have you read The Book of Love? I have not yet. Everybody else I know has read The Book of Love. I have not. (laughs) It is all the things. I have not finished that short story collection yet, but it is all the things that you are pulling out of that as what you love, like the mythic and the contemporary just being Mm. seamlessly put together. It's gorgeous. Oh, I'm very excited about it. I understand it's another brick, though. Yeah, 640 pages of fun. When I sell it to them, I've been just leaving that out. <laughs> well, I, this, comes from, this comes from James, who yelled at me several months ago, saying, stop bothering about the length of books, Ian. It's not important. <laughs> then, then got me to read The Deluge, which I loved, which will, I know we'll be There's a whole thing to be said that sometimes, I mean, we are talking about earlier with Mean Wood about how it was long. Sometimes long books are great. You know, there is a special wonder to a, a long book. I mean, both the joy of immersion in one and then the degree of complexity and examination that can be brought to one when you get a really, really well done one. And the reason that we distrust long books is some of them are also sloppily written and way too long and blah, 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 blah. But do you really, I would never think that Kelly Link would be likely to do that at all. And she hasn't. And so, yeah. She went from short fiction to that. I do love that. Uh, how did she you, was yeah, like, that, they that, said that, I had elbow room. Like, well, <laughs> I, I, one of the other enormous books I read this year was I read Lev Grossman's book, which is coming out next year, the Arthur one, which is, I'm just going to give a plug to an extra book. It's absolutely and oh. enormous. <laughs> it's shorter than it was in the version I read it in, but you know, it's 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 fantastic, but also big. Yes, it's large. I do want to put uh, have a slight objection to uh, uh, an assumption made by all of us who are associated in any way with genre fiction that a long genre novel that that that. that even that the book of love is long, it's maybe what seven hundred pages. First of all, you look at you look at the mainstream or what I consider general fiction bestseller list. You look at Jonathan Franzen novels or Roger Kingshopper novels that come out at five and six hundred pages each. That's never noted as a long book when you're talking about quote yes, it unquote is. literary. You are wrong, Gary. They are no it is noted. It is noted. I've read all 
those mainstream reviews, they are noted. Yes. Oh, they are? They okay, go on about it too. It doesn't stop them. Oh, absolutely they do. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't stop them. No, 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 it doesn't stop them, but it is. it does get noted. It does. I promise. Let me just interject briefly as well and say the idea of long has changed. Go back and look at the long books of the past, like June, which is what, about 450 pages when you actually look at it. Go back and look at... Uh, Oh, no, don't. Just pick up a copy and look at uh, The Moat in God's Eye by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, which is about the same. And that was one of the doorstoppers of its day. Yes. You know? Even uh, by those so, standards. I mean, the, the Les Mis is 1,100 pages, for heaven's sake. I know. Julian Barnes once described Les Mis as... Sorry, Julian Barnes anyway, once described yeah. Les Mis as the worst great book ever written. <laughs> we will never get, get through this if, Gary, you don't tell us what your next book is. Um... I'm going to talk about Christopher Priest's Airside, which is, it's like all Christopher Priest novels in which time and space are malleable, but it, it, at least it begins with what looks like a familiar plot. It takes place in a version of our world in which a, a successful Hollywood actress flies to London, gets off the plane at Heathrow, and this takes place right after Heathrow opened, I gather, and disappears. She's never seen again. So the, the plot that pulls you through more than in many Priest novels is uh, is the mystery of what happened to this. But there's also, the title refers to the two sides of an airport, the air side, which is the professional pilots, the people who make the airport run, and land side, which are the rest of us, peons. Uh, so it's, it's literally a novel about liminal spaces. It takes place in liminal spaces. It talks about liminal spaces. It talks about, uh, you know, uh, defining ways of defining reality depending on perspective. So it's like a lot of priest novels, it's about perspective. Uh, and it's confusing, but it also has a kind of through line that, um, that, that you'd see in some of his popular novels when he was writing bestsellers uh, 20 or 30 years ago. But I think it's just, a, it's both a Christopher Priest mind bender and a coherently plotted novel that you can actually follow without getting terribly confused. And you should also read The Separation, which is also brilliant. Yeah, Separation is a, a, another one of those time-sifting things. It's problematic when you find yourself doing these uh, year and review -y kind of things, and you have to decide if you're going to recommend something that you worked on as well. And I've edited and worked on a few things that, you know, and there's all kinds of reasons, but... Um, about a month ago, Kelly Barnhill, one of the tre you know, group of treasures in, in our field who's not, you know, who are named Kelly, uh, had an article in the New York Times where she talked about um, her experience with multiple concussions and her lo the loss of her ability to write story, uh, the, the loss of her brain to be able to track how you would build story because she had lost the ability to think about multiple things at once and how the core of building stories and telling stories was the ability to think about two different things at once in the back of your mind. The last thing that she finished before her accident was a book called The Crane Husband. It's a novella that's obviously a take on uh, The Crane Wife, and it's the story of a 15-year-old girl in the American Midwest somewhere who's basically been left as responsible for raising her family and looking after them because her, her mother, who is an artist who uh, builds, makes found art and these one, these these wonderful tapestries, whatever else, has fallen for this crane, this, this crane that appears in the middle of the night and is working on this masterpiece made out of his feathers and whatever else, but she can't do anything practical in the world. So it all falls to this, this girl and it sort of sits on the border of science fiction and fantasy and it's warm and it's human and it's beautifully, beautifully done, which everything of Kelly did. Kelly does is 
And it may be the last thing she ever writes. It may not be. I hope it's not. There's sort of whispers in her article that she's finding ways. She's also the most profligate storyteller I've ever spoken to. This is a person who used to write a fairy tale every morning to get started, then throw it away. She would throw out trash bags full of fairy tales she'd write every, all the time. And that's the kind of thing you would just invent to upset younger writers. You just want to keep them nervous, you know, be like, oh, I write a fairy tale every morning. Uh, yeah. Yeah, everyone. How's that? Just really <laughs> yeah. I throw it away. No, no I, I think she's telling the truth. But, no, I'm but sure no. she is. I mean, it was, she actually had two books that she did fairly closely together this one and Women Who Are, Who Are Dragons, which is also staggeringly terrific. But if you're looking for a sharp, short, dark, moving, powerful book, The Crane Husband is your book. Now, Alec. Not quite the home run. We've got a couple of ways to go, but what's your next choice? Um, he Who Drowned the World by Shelley Parker Chan. I loved the first one. She Who Became the Sun. The sequel, I like even more. Like, I think there's something about reading it while thinking, like, in the back of my head, like, oh, my gosh, they were pulling their punches. Like, it goes <laughs> harder. It kind of leans harder into all of the deeply messy and harmful little dynamics between all of these characters um, I think it is grimmer and sadder and bloodier somehow. Um, but I, I, when I talk about it, I realize I say all these horrible things and I really don't want to scare anyone off from it because I think that it is not a grim, dark, historical epic about just senseless and unrelenting suffering. I think at even the bleakest moments, what makes those books kind of work so well for me is the the kind of potential, which is often passed mm. by for connection and empathy and grace between all these people who are sort of on the fringes and margins of history. I just, I think it's fantastic. I, I would second that completely. It's a wonderful, wonderful, and would have been on, on my list. And I look forward for it to have just enough time pass so I can go back and read them together, because I think that would be a, an interesting experience, a fascinating experience. Ian, where are you going to take us next? I'm going to take you to a writer who's been writing for more than 40 years, uh, who this is, uh, this is my first uh, introduction to her work. She's known mostly for short fiction and essays. Uh, she's a bit of a legend uh, called uh, Laurie Moore. Uh, I, I wasn't aware of Laurie until I picked up I Am Homeless, if this, not, if this is not my home. But I read uh, reviews by Dwight Garner and Palisade, and she's clearly much loved. Much, and, and as Dwight said, she's one of the authors who her essays and her short fiction is loved by many, but her novels are seen as minor works. Which, it, to an extent, this one's an interesting one because for, for both Paul Sagal and Dwight Garner, who both reviewed this book, this book, it confounded them. They weren't sure what to make of it uh, at all. And, 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 and they're not sure if it's a minor work, but I think it's not a minor work. I can tell them it isn't. Having never read a Laurie Moore book, I can tell them quite confidently this is extraordinary. Um, so basically the story uh, is that you've got this hapless bloke called Finn who undertakes a road trip with his zombie ex-girlfriend. I'll leave it at that. Just go, just go with that. <laughs> what that means, what, what, what that's about, and how that connects to the assassination of, um, uh, of Lincoln uh, and John Wilkes Booth and a bunch of other things, I'm going to leave for you to uncover. Short book as well, by the way. Um, look, the thing about Laurie Moore is that, and, that's what, and I think it's that ex-girlfriend zombie that uh, the sort, I would say that the great critics like Garner and Sagal they sort of maybe they found a bit strange they weren't sure what to do with that uh and yet i think they both were very generous to the book and i'm being extraordinarily generous by saying that 
Uh, it's it's just an, a, a marvellous bit of writing. It, it, she knows how to craft the perfect sentence. There are sentences in this book that didn't just make me laugh, but made me wonder, oh, my God, how has no one ever written that sentence before? <laughs> it's just the perfect sentence ever written. The dialogue, it's very dialogue heavy. So the dialogue between Finn and Lily, who's the zombie girlfriend, is just amazing. And it reminded me, and James, I think you've read it too, uh, Miriam Toes, All My Puny Sorrows. This is because mm. is, it, de- it deals with similar, to, uh, you know, about as someone who wants to take their life or has taken their life. And it, it deals with that sort of uh, hard, dark stuff, but in a way that's, oh, wow, amazing. Uh, it, it really does encapsulate the messiness of contemporary life and does it in about 60,000 words. Uh, highly, highly recommend. Excellent. James, what about you? Uh, What's next? I adore the twos novel as well, and I would push back against the, uh, I mean, you know, Laurie Moore's short stories are extraordinary. I'd... I'd I think possibly the first novel, the Frog Hospital one, is a slightly minor book, but the second one, A Gate at the Stairs, is one of my favourite books in the world. So, you know, I would okay. push back against the uh, she's a minor, the, the novels are minor works, myself as well. Um, so my third is Stephen Markley's, we were talking about long books before, Stephen Markley's The Deluge, which is a giant, you know, I haven't got to you, I think it's about 800 close set pages. Uh, and I guess it's a kind of parallel book to a book like The Ministry of the Future. So it's essentially a kind of future history of the next 30 or 40 years, um, told through the lens of a series of different characters, um, many of whom are involved. I mean, they're kind of actors in the process. So they're activists or they're policy advisors or, or things like that. Um, it is a book that does, I think, a better job than anything I have read um, of capturing the kind of granular experience of living through the next 30 or 40 years as the climate convulses. Um, It has a series of set pieces. There's one about fires in Los Angeles, which is just completely overwhelming. It's amazing. But I I found it, look, I'm going to rattle off some objections to it in a moment, but I mean, I actually think, look, I swim in this stuff. I mean, this is what I write about. You know, I write Mm -hmm. fiction about climate, Uh, you know, like this is kind of my beat. And I found it an utterly overwhelming experience to read, you know, in a way almost, I mean, like you just get blank to it, you know, and I read it and it's just like it it does such an incredible job of capturing the the way climate is already and is going to continue kind of deranging politics, society, the, the kind of intersecting and overlapping and, you know, kind of intensifying nature and experience of climate effects. I mean, it's, it's really quite remarkable. I, have, I mean, I have some objections to it. I think it is a book that is, um, I think it is uncritical about American centrality to the process. I think that it's, look, I can't speak about the stuff in other countries, but, you know, its grasp of what's going on in other countries is not good. The bits about Australia are actually, I would say, kind of embarrassing. Mm. Um, but, you know, and I think also it does that thing where, because he's chosen to follow the paths of people who are adjacent to or involved in the political process, he ends up writing a lot about the kind of minutiae of political debates and about policy and things like that. And I think that that, in an odd way, diffuses the book in some ways, because, I mean, I think the kind of political stuff is actually some of the less convincing bits of the book. But the actual just kind of lived detail of it, the experience of reading it, that sense that you are seeing what this is going to be like, I think is so powerfully imagined and so 
unbelievably imagined. I mean, I think his kind of attitudes to technology and stuff are very well done. It's, look, it's a really remarkable book. And But it, like I say, I think it does, I think you'd read it next to the Ministry for the Future. I think it does a better job of imagining the kind of granular experience of it than anything I've read. Wow. It was okay. one review called a 900 pages of finger wagging, but I couldn't disagree more. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, what I'm, about okay. your next choice before you dive into the wine too hard? Oh, don't stop that. Uh, we're going to I, – I, I, I'm at a dilemma now, and I think what I'm going to do in the interest of saving time is collapse three or four things that uh, I was going back and forth. I, there are things I like about all of them. I mentioned it was a good – year for retrospective collections it was a i thought it was a very good year for story collections in general and there were four of them that i was going back and forth looking at and deciding why do i have to choose one of these to make out a list so, uh, the, the four story collections i it's the format but i'm going to i'm going to collapse my last four things these four story okay. collections into one comment so that uh, we can we can go along with this one of them uh was uh we were talking about uh, rethinking earlier stories. One of them is Christopher Barzak's Monstrous Alterations, which are stories derived from earlier stories. Only one of them is based on a fairy tale. There's a version of William Wilson. There's a story based on the life of the little girl who got trampled by Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's a version of uh, a Scott Fitzgerald story in it. In some cases, uh, he's unfolding you know, the queer subtext of the stories. In other cases, like Goblin Market, that part isn't the subtext anyway, and he still makes use of it. Um, so it, it, it's just a really interesting exercise, and he has some fascinating critical comments on ways of adapting earlier fiction. So that was one short story collection. I also like Sarah Pinsker's collection, Lost Places. I also liked Lily Yu's collection, Jewel Box, and I also liked uh, Kit Johnson's collection, The Privilege of a Happy Ending, all for completely different reasons. And I could probably go on for a minute or so about each of them, but I won't. I'll simply say it's a good year for story collections, and these are four of the best ones I saw. Okay, then fine. Be like that. I'm going to be like that. <laughs> One of the things that make any year interesting and give it character and structure as, as a, someone who reads are the debut novels you come across. And there are a handful of really great ones published this year. One of them uh, was Wole Talabi's debut, Shigidi and the Brasshead of a, of a Balafon, which is based on both, I think, a deep enjoyment of um, Jim Butcher-style urban fantasy and a presentation of Yoruban mythology and their Orisha, you know, their, their gods and whatever else. So it's the story basically of a low-level nightmare uh, god and his succubus girlfriend who are working for a corporate spirit company and get caught up in what is by any measure a ripping yarn it's enormous fun it's funny it's engaging but underneath it all it's really kind of thoughtful and beautifully done and banged out in like a couple of hundred pages let's face it when you're when you're getting a ripping yarn that races past you want it to race past pretty quickly but you also find yourself afterwards sort of sitting down and thinking about what you've read and wondering about what will come next. And I think we are seeing the appearance of someone who we're going to be reading for a long time with uh, Talabi's, you know, with, with, with Wale. Um, it's certainly engaging. And if you're looking for, to give someone something interesting this year that's unlike the other books they're stumbling across, which is a, this is a good one. It's one of a couple of terrific debuts. Uh, I mean, 
at the same, you could be sort of Chain Gang All Stars, which is also a debut novel, and a, you know a few others. But that's my you know my recommendation this time around. Now we're coming into the home run, the the, the fifth of, of of each of our list, except for Gary's, who's at twenty seven. Um, so. <laughs> Alex, since you since you've played by the rules and haven't cheated terribly like some people, what's your fifth on your list? Not 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 like not, not the one with the loser, the worst on your list, the one that you wanted to talk about last, just so you get through it. But the one that you actually what kind of yeah. number five? For my last one, I'm going to drag another cursed term into this conversation, <laughs> which is romanticy. Oh, um, ah. Yeah. How's that even a term? Never mind cursed. That's like a, like you just made that up. I well <laughs> No, it's I wish showing that up in I promo had. letters all I the time. I wish I had just now invented that. Um <laughs> No, God help us. Uh so I, I read romance, I read fantasy. This should be a two great taste situation. Uh but relatively few of these are working for me. <laughs> um and I just I don't think I don't you know, that's a personal taste thing, but it is also, I don't think it's great for like art in general when like a corporation or let's say five particular corporations decide there's suddenly a lot of money in this genre. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, there's a lot coming out right now that does not work for me. One that did work for me is Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Heather Fawcett. It sounds like Emily Wilde is the author that is part of the title. Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies is the title. Um, it is kind of a doing a 19th century academic diary travelogue kind of a style. It's written as a diary of a lady scholar who is in the field studying fairies alongside her academic rival slash love interest. That's all very boilerplate to me. Like that's, you know, fine. Two things I think absolutely save it. One is that the fairies are terrifying. It's a much more Jonathan Strange old school approach to the fae. It's, it's like field work among monsters and I think that's great and the second one is that Emily Wilde the main character is mean and cold and genuinely unlikable and I think that's wonderful I think that's fantastic I have such affection for her and that saves it from being saccharine and it saves it from being predictable and sort of trite and it made it much weirder and darker and meaner of a story and so it works for me as a romance and as a fantasy and i loved it <laughs> but it's like the actually... first one like a series or something isn't it oh. yeah the next one comes out next year and it's emily wilde's map of the other lands and it's just as good i, I have such a good time in this world so there's no heart of gold element like she's just completely and utterly no and she that's it's critical to make you understand that she's mean and she doesn't get better (laughs) 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 it's i think also i in romance that you might have heard of the grumpy versus sunshine sort of dynamic pairing Hmm. that is almost exclusively a grumpy horrible genuinely like borderline abusive man and like a happy woman who saves him and it's fully flipped, except that the woman never gets ungrumpy. She's just like, maybe borderline, she reads on the spectrum, frankly. And she just is like ambitious. She is out there for herself. And I love her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Ian. So my final What comes last? Yes. So my final book in this cavalcade of books is Jeff Ryman's uh, Hymn. Uh, which only came out 12 days ago, James. So stop looking shocked. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's, um, yeah, I mean, look, how to write about the birth of Jesus 
uh, in a way that uh, seems on the flush to be extremely controversial and provocative, but ends up being just hum- compassionate, human, wonderful, and everything else. So the the basic pre- the central premise is that uh, what if there was an alternative history, and it is an alternative history that is made clear mm. uh, at least two thirds of the way in the novel, where Jesus uh, was born uh, fem- biologically female, but identified as a man, and so that's the premise. And of course, that just saying that would upset a whole lot of people. Um, but the way so the way Ryman does it is. Uh, he leans into that quite heavily, that 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 gender aspect. It's not like it's a conceit that he then just ignores. Absolutely key and pivotal to every aspect of the book, including the climax, which is an extraordinary climax. Actually, the last 10 pages are weep-worthy, but also just amazing. But then he also brings a sense of verisimilitude to the whole thing. So I'm Jewish. Uh, you know, not Christian, but I know this period quite well. I know about, uh, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the split, and then you've got the Essenes as well. And so while I'm, not, I'm no biblical scholar, I do come to this with an understanding of this period, and Ryman goes that extra length to make it really clear. I mean, it's the only book I've seen in, like this that goes into depth about Torah Shabbat Alper and Torah Shabbat so the oral law, the oral Torah, and the written Torah, and how yeah. those things uh, created it—that—that—that's the schism that exists between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I know how, how dull that sounds, but it is so integral to the story of Jesus and what what and and, and early Christian forefathers, etc. That it, you need to explain it. You can't gloss over it. And Ryman doesn't, but does it in a way that's utterly fascinating and mesmerising. And he does it by making this a story about a mum and a and a son. So Mary, who doesn't accept uh, Jesus as a male or mm-hmm. as a man uh, initially and, 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 in fact, pushes against it and feels that, that this is God's uh, – that, that this will be – there will be a punishment from God and then ultimately does accept it in a way that's just amazing. So, um, yeah, <laughs> this is the other one I think could win a Clark Ward. I think it should win something. It's been so there's been debates whether it's fantasy or science fiction because it's certainly an alternative history. But Jesus performs, uh, or the son of uh, Adam, as he calls himself, uh, performs miracles, actual genuine miracles, as in the reality convulses and miracles occur. So you can take it, you know, it's one of those taxonomy questions that everyone loves discussing, but it could fit in either. Uh, you know, and it's interesting in that level as well. But nah, amazing, amazing. Perfect Christmas gift, actually. It, it, it's a very. I, I just finished it like a, a couple of days ago, and I think it's 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 a rather um, it's beautifully written for one thing. The prose is, is is absolutely gorgeous. But I saw somebody online discussing it as a multiverse novel in some way. That there's a, a way of looking at the. There is there is one section where uh, where Jesus does think of the different ah. hymns out there. Uh, so there is that one little section, but that's about that's okay. about it. That's okay. uh, the, 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 yeah, it's yeah, no, it, it's beautiful. And I should also say, um, going back to Hopeland, this is also a novel, as Jonathan knows, that uh, was um, sitting there for some time. I mean, it was originally a novella. Now it's a novel. The novella is very different to the novel. Anyway, it's yeah. So this one was percolating as well, but this is one where the percolation benefit great. Gra- it's greatly benefited from that. Mm. And it's been a long time since uh, Jeff has had a book out. It's been yes. a decade or something, and so it's wonderful to see him him back writing. Okay, we're back to James, you, James. What, what's your 
your but to you, Gary, sorry, but what's your, your closer after your extra four books? That was no, James, 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 you distracted me. It is James, it's James, Gary, it is me. Sorry, I was um, so distracted by uh, background noise that I wasn't sure what it was. Well, my background okay. noise is sorry, I have a house full of teenagers, and I had the conversation where you said, Can you please not be noisy outside the door for the next hour? But then that's broken down, so I apologize okay. for that. Um, uh so my, my fifth is a really, I guess, a kind of unimaginative choice, but it's actually Emily Tesh's book, Some Desperate Glory, which um, I'm sure many people have read. Uh, it's a kind of core genre book. And, I mean, essentially, if you're writing the conceit of the book, there's that old Mitchell and Webb sketch with the two SS officers with, you know, the David Mitchell character saying to the other, like, are we the bad guys? <laughs> and it's this kind of... <laughs> It's a novel in which Earth has been destroyed. There's, you know, it's within a kind of galactic confederacy kind of thing, which is managed by this giant artificial intelligence, but they've destroyed Earth because Earth was too much of a problem. There are remnants of Earth around. One of them is this kind of ruined, militarised society. It's about a group of teenagers in that. Um, and it's, you know, it's about radicalism. It's about, it's just about, about, about these kids kind of realising that, they've been indoctrinated into this kind of horrifying, militaristic, radicalised kind of society. But then that's kind of interesting all on its own. And then halfway through the book, it pulls this just kind of bananas kind of, and total, I mean, I had no idea it was coming. It pulls this kind of bananas kind of narrative digression. You know, this thing happens that you kind of go, oh, okay. And then it becomes a completely different book. And I thought it was kind of, it, it's a terrific book. Like it's, it's this big, fun, intellectually interesting kind of core genre book. And and I look, I enjoyed it enormously. I, I, I There's been a lot of excitement about it. I think that's completely fantastic. And I'm going to be really quick because we're running out of time. I'm going to mention two more books in Gary Fashion. Another is another core genre book, which is M.R. Carey's um, Infinity Gate, which I thought was terrific. It's the beginning of a series. It's a multiverse thing. It's it's hugely energetic and hugely fun and full of ideas. Um, and uh, Paul Lynch's Prophet Song, which just won the Booker Prize, which I think is probably genre, definitely genre adjacent, and it's about islands slipping into kind of fascism and is terrific, incredibly powerful, um, very timely and very worth reading. And that's me done. Fair enough. I, I, I will endorse your, your choice of the the Emily Tesh book, which was a book I read back at the beginning of the mm -hmm. year, and I had no idea quite what to expect, and I was torn because there's such for all of the genre elements are absolutely core standard things, but what Tesh does with them is fascinating and really engaging. And one one of the things I've been looking for is to see how is the core of genre going to evolve and change over time uh, as we change the points of view and the protagonists that we're going to show, have in stories, destroy the stories we're trying. And I think Some Desperate Glory is the kind of book that maybe begins to point a finger in that sort of direction. And it's really interesting for that reason as well. But it's just a great read. Gary, take us out with your 375th book on your I'll, 900 I'll, book I'll, long I'll list. Only mention, I'll only mention one, which was again on my backup list. But since we've already talked about uh, Nina Allen's Conquest and its portrayal of 50 science fiction I have to, and I'll tell you why I didn't have it on my initial list, but I did really enjoy Lavi Tidhar's The Circumference of the World, and I tend to distrust novels that seem to be written for the likes of me. Um, 
it was it, it it hit all kinds of nostalgia buttons. Like the Nina Allen novel, it has a mysterious apocryphal 1950s science fiction novel at the center of it. Uh, it has uh, a lot of inside jokes for science fiction historians. There are letters from uh, John W. Campbell and to John W. Campbell and L. Ron Hubbard. There's an L. Ron Hubbard figure in the center. It's just enormous fun. Uh, but I sometimes wonder if somebody is not keyed in to the history of classic science fiction, how much sense it would make. It's, it, it, it's, it's an it's a interesting uh, kind of caper novel, uh, but it's enormous fun for people who grew up reading science fiction the way I did. Yeah. I'm going to, because we're somewhat over our, our, our length, I'm going to keep this very, very, very short. My final recommendation is also a remarkable debut novel that seems to echo classic fiction being the story of a boy whose shadow has been uh, pinned to, uh, has been torn from him after it's been pinned to the earth with a large brass nail, and that is The Saint of Bright Doors by Vajra Chandrasekhara, which is a terrific book. And you should just go read it because it's worth it. It's been terrific. It would have been on my list, Jonathan. Would have been on my list. Magnificent debut. Just, just, just brief. And in fact, talks to the fact that if you're going to sort of uh, sort of look at this in a recommended readingy list kind of context, which you know three out of the five of us sort of do, it's one of that small handful of first novels that dominated the year, dominated the conversation of the year. and which I think signaled a talent that we're going to be reading for years. I mean, um, Vajra's second book, uh, Breakfall, is due out in three or four months, and it's going to be really, really interesting to see sort of how how his career progresses. And it's a book. Just quickly, it's a, it's a book yeah. that uh, it's a book that um, what James was saying before. It's three or four different books in one, hmm. uh, and 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 just just it's just magnificent how he controls it. I, I don't know how he did it. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, interestingly, we were talking about the kind of way you get tropes turning up again. It's the there is another shadow book out, which is the Marissa Crane. We keep our exoskeletons to ourselves. Which oh, is that's great too. Where, yeah, where but where bad you know, people who are convicted of crimes get extra shadows stapled to them. Uh, stapled to them. <laughs> that's right. Correct. That is good. Yes, rather than torn away. That was one of my. That was one of the first books I read this year, and I, I read a lot of good books. That's why twenty twenty three is an awesome year. I don't know. That's that should be the conclusion here, despite what Jonathan might have said. But no, 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 I'm no. That was just me, though. Not you. <laughs> the, 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 the Mr. Crane and the Mr. Crane's a debut, and it's amazing. It's amazing. Yes. What's the, the other thing, shadow is... book? The new, the Holly Black for adults. The Book of Night is also a shadow book. Where like. It's like magic and legal. I don't know how it works. Yeah, it's fantastic. I liked it a lot. Jonathan, can I just mention very briefly Cahokia Jazz by Francis Buffett? If we do 78-minute podcasts and not mention Francis Buffett's Cahokia Jazz, then we've done something wrong. And I know it should have been on my list. And it is. I've just mentioned it. Number six. There you go. Gary broke the rules. Do you want to say at least what it is? It's an, another alt reality where God, um, that a, a certain Native American tribe uh, survives uh, colonization from the Americans and therefore creates. So, so in the Midwest, there's they've got their own sovereign state, and there's also a sovereign Mormon state in amongst uh, a federated America, and it happens to be a, a, a noir 1920s detective novel as well, <laughs> or crime novel, I should say. It's more crime than detective in amongst all that, and it's got jazz in it, lots of jazz, and it's, <laughs> the, the way Spufford describes the jazz scenes are uh, chef's kiss. So, uh, great. 
terrific book. It, it's kind of a, a, a creature not unlike the Yiddish Policeman's Union in, in some yeah, ways. It's, right? Yes, it's, yes, very much so. Very much so, yes. Terrific. Uh, okay, so, yes. That's so, it. So, that's so many, many books. And I remember talking to, maybe it was you, Ian, and someone said to me, the thing is I can't really imagine the books I'm looking forward to in 2024. There's nothing really me. around. And, you know. I've said that. And you know what? I I've bullshit. reviewed two books. No, I do a cool bullshit on myself. I've already reviewed two books uh, that I blew me away. So, uh, yeah, cool bullshit already on myself. Yeah, yeah I'm wrong. Okay. Well, we've yeah. run way over. I'm, I'm tempted to sort of go around and say, is there a single book you're looking forward to next year? But maybe that's a conversation to leave for another time. So maybe what we should do is, whilst reminding you that Starling House is out in the world and you can order, order copies, that James has a new book coming out in March that we'll talk about, that there's all kinds of things in the world. Maybe what we should do is say, wind up by sort of say, thanking you, Alex Harrow, for making time to talk to us today. It's been a pleasure. And you, James Bradley, and Ian Mond. Thank you. The, the holiday season is upon us. Are you, are you are you all ready? I mean, we've given everybody their, their gift guide. It'll go out today. Are you all ready for the holidays? <laughs> okay, that's... I don't celebrate it, so I'm have. ready. I thought the holidays were over. You know what we should do? We should congratulate Ian, who actually... It's very rare you get an award for writing for Locus. Mm. <laughs> Thank so, you, Gary. Thank you. Congratulations yes. on the, it was the Dittmar. Am I correct? Yes, it was Dittmar. Well, the Athling, but thank you. Athling. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But the, the Athling is technically not a Dittmar, but it's complicated. It's like, uh, it's like all those things that are technically Hugo, but yeah. nobody knows. Here comes the award. Correct. That's right. But, but, okay. right. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. Thank you all for making the time. We hope that everybody who's listening finds something in amongst these books to sort of either give us gifts to, to the ones they love or the ones they don't, or maybe just to, to buy for themselves and enjoy. But for now, thank you all, everybody, for it's been wonderful. And until 2024, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>